At around 8 a.m. on December 20th, 2009, a Los Angeles 911 operator received a chilling call. The caller was in hysterics. She gave her address, 1895 Rising Glen Road. Then she screamed, my daughter's passed out. Please get here quick. When the caller said her 32-year-old daughter was no longer breathing, the operator instructed her on how to perform CPR. The caller relayed the information to a man in the background, but nothing they did seemed to work. A few minutes later, when paramedics arrived at the mansion in the Hollywood Hills, they found a 115-pound woman lying on her bathroom floor. She was surrounded by a sea of hair products and cosmetics. Her hair was freshly wet from the shower. Her pulse was weak, and she was covered in vomit. Paramedics lifted her onto a gurney and into their ambulance. Then they rushed her to Los Angeles' Cedars-Sinai Hospital. The patient's husband and mother raced behind the sirens. An hour passed as they comforted one another in the hospital waiting room, praying for good news. But it never came. At 10.05 a.m., doctors gave up on trying to restart the young woman's heart. And with that, Brittany Murphy, Hollywood's sweetheart, was dead. A Los Angeles coroner suggested Brittany's death was due to natural causes, but the media had other ideas about the actress's untimely demise. The press had called Brittany many names in the past, drug addict, diva, anorexic. Now they were eager to add murder victim to the list. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the mysterious death of Brittany Murphy, the Hollywood actress best known for her role in the blockbuster hit Clueless, died unexpectedly at the age of 32. This episode will cover the slippery slope that was Brittany's career, her relationship with Hollywood villain Simon Monjack, and the bizarre circumstances surrounding her death. Next time, we'll explore a few theories about Brittany's untimely demise. Some suggest that toxic mold in the actress's home may have played a part. Others say she was wrapped up in a government conspiracy, while some believe her own family may be guilty of murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. 
So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When 13-year-old Brittany Murphy moved to Los Angeles in 1991, she had no idea that Hollywood would one day devour her whole. The doe-eyed actress had begged her mom for years to move to California so she could star on television. As a single mother, Sharon was willing to go to the ends of the earth for her little girl. So she agreed to leave her advertising job in New Jersey and travel across the country. She believed that her daughter had what it took to become a star. And she was right. Almost immediately, Brittany landed a role on the television series Drexel's Class. From there, Brittany's career escalated with small roles on sitcoms like Blossom and Sister Sister. And then, in 1995, she struck gold. Brittany was cast in the sleeper hit of the year, a cult teen flick titled Clueless. Loosely based on Jane Austen's novel Emma, the movie centers around a popular, albeit shallow, high school girl named Cher, played by Alicia Silverstone. Cher takes a new student named Ty under her wing, introducing her to the Beverly Hills lifestyle. As soon as Brittany entered the audition room, writer-director Amy Heckerling knew she was their tie. Brittany's chemistry with Silverstone was undeniable. Heckerling had read dozens of girls for the part, but no one compared to Brittany. In fact, critics later claimed that she was the real breakout star of the film instead of Silverstone. After being cast, 17-year-old Brittany was the youngest, most unseasoned person on set. And since she was still a minor, production required her mother Sharon to be with her every day she filmed. The experience was probably polarizing for Brittany, who likely wanted her independence. In addition, she and Sharon were battling with even bigger issues at home. While Brittany was filming Clueless, Sharon was diagnosed with breast cancer. Suddenly, Brittany's dynamic with her mother was flipped on its head. Brittany became the caretaker and breadwinner of the family. Despite these adult pressures, Heckerling later said that Brittany never let them affect her performance. She always remained level-headed and professional on set. And it paid off. When Clueless was released in 1995, it became the summer's breakout hit. It made over $56 million at the box office, which would be around $95 million today. Suddenly, teenage girls all over the country flocked to the malls, many of them searching for plaid skirts and knee-high stockings, hoping to resemble the cult hit's characters. Heckerling signed a deal to turn the film into a television series, and the movie's soundtrack went platinum. As for Brittany, 
Her iconic lines were repeated all over the nation, and soon, everyone in America wanted to be rolling with the homies. In another stroke of good fortune, Sharon's cancer went into remission shortly after the film premiered. But with her daughter's career skyrocketing, Sharon had no reason to search for a job or a backup plan of her own. As a result, Brittany continued to feel the pressure to provide for them both. Following her breakout role, Brittany lost weight and dyed her hair blonde. She landed a few dramatic roles in films like Girl Interrupted with Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie. She also starred across from Eminem in his 2002 film, Eight Mile. With these small but significant parts, Brittany proved that she was a versatile actress, excelling in both comedy and drama. It's no surprise that studios started to believe that she had the chops to star as a leading lady. In 2002, Brittany landed a role that changed the course of her career. She was cast alongside Hollywood heartthrob Ashton Kutcher in the romantic comedy Just Married. At the time, he too was at the height of his stardom. Playing opposite Kutcher had the potential to make Brittany an A-list celebrity. From the minute the two were introduced on set, the chemistry was undeniable. Soon, Brittany wasn't just playing opposite Hollywood's biggest hunk, she was dating him. It was an all-out war between the paparazzi, each dying to get an exclusive shot of the industry's hottest couple. Brittany was on top of the world. In 2003, she starred in the film Uptown Girls and bought her first house in the Hollywood Hills for $3.85 million. The home had formerly belonged to pop star Britney Spears. And then, just seven months after their relationship began, Britney and Ashton called it quits. Friends of the couple said that the two had different lifestyles. He was a party boy who enjoyed the nightlife scene. Brittany was a homebody. Little did she know, this breakup would be the beginning of a downward spiral. Later that year, Sharon's cancer returned. Brittany told People magazine that she dropped everything for her mother. She attended every doctor's appointment and chemo session. But she remained optimistic, telling reporters, my mom taught me there's always a way to channel your fears into love. Following Sharon's double mastectomy, their bond grew stronger. Brittany saw how fragile and dependent her mother was on her, and she had to take that into consideration as new relationships started to blossom. In 2004, Brittany's talent manager, Jeffrey Quatnitz, proposed after a few months of dating. However, just four months into the engagement, Brittany felt the pairing wasn't right, so she called it quits. Less than a year later, Brittany was engaged again, this time to a production assistant from her film Little Black Book. However, again, doubts struck, and by the summer of 2006, the couple had amicably ended their engagement. As fiancés came and went, Sharon was a constant. She continued living with Brittany, even as her daughter turned 28. Their close quarters might have added to the strain of Brittany's fraying relationships. Soon, there were rumors that Brittany was dealing with more controversial issues outside of her strained family life. In 2005, 
Brittany was inexplicably dropped by her agents and manager of 12 years. A pretty big snub for anyone working in the industry. Radar Online, a gossip website, picked up on the story and reported that Brittany was canned for, quote, vague but foreboding personal reasons. Allegedly, before getting dropped by her representatives, Brittany had been seen at a party high on heroin and cocaine. In the past, Brittany was questioned about her relationship with drugs and alcohol. In regards to cocaine, she told Jean Magazine, No, just for the record, I have never tried it in my entire life. I have never even seen it, and I don't leave the house too much, except to go to work. Despite these denials, everyone wondered if America's sweetheart was telling the truth. Fans thought she looked devastatingly thin, and rapper and former co-star Eminem claimed that during filming, Brittany regularly took prescription drugs like Xanax and Valium while smoking weed. After being dropped by her manager and agent, Brittany had a hard time getting new work. As a result, she resorted to doing low-budget movies for half her rate, just to keep a roof over her and Sharon's head. Then, in April of 2006, Brittany reconnected with a British writer-director who promised to turn her career around. 37-year-old Simon Monjack had written a script called The White Hotel. After meeting to discuss the film over a romantic meal at the Hotel Bel Air, Brittany found herself transfixed by both the script and the storyteller. By the end of the night, the two left the restaurant smitten with one another. Simon was known for dating other celebrities prior to Murphy. He'd just broken off a relationship with Senator John Kerry's daughter, Alexandra. But Simon didn't strike Britney's friends as her type. He was much older and not at all like the charming pretty boys Britney had dated in the past. At first, Sharon was also hesitant about Simon. She saw the pattern of her daughter throwing herself into yet another fast-paced relationship. And although the couple kept their romance out of the spotlight, Sharon believed that Simon had ulterior motives. In February of 2007, Sharon's doubts were seemingly validated. Simon was arrested and facing deportation after authorities discovered that his visa had expired. Unfortunately, this event only pushed Brittany further into his arms. In April of that year, the two got hitched in a private ceremony. Their nuptials appeared sudden considering they'd never even announced they were engaged. After learning about their secret relationship, the Hollywood rumor mill began to churn. Did they get married for Simon's citizenship? Were they actually in love? And did Brittany know about Simon's sordid past? A director friend of Brittany's named George Hinkenlooper called the actress after he heard the news. He told her to reconsider her relationship with Simon, asking, quote, Do you know this guy? Do you know what you are doing by marrying him? Brittany grew angry with Hickenlooper and told him that she knew Simon better than anyone else. Then she hung up. And despite Hickenlooper's efforts, the two hardly spoke again. It was just one of the many relationships Brittany would jeopardize for Simon. Meanwhile, the couple told reporters they were on cloud nine. Journalists agreed. In interviews, they really did seem head over heels for each other. 
But for Simon Monjack, being in love meant having complete ownership over the Hollywood starlet. And it was only a matter of time before his dark past came back to haunt them both. Coming up, the downward spiral of Britney's career leads to her untimely death. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th President of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January, to commemorate this iconic milestone, Dig into the dramas of a real-life American dynasty in the Spotify original from ParCast, The Kennedys. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite ParCast hosts, including me, covering every angle of The Kennedys from shows like Today in True Crime, Conspiracy Theories, Crime Countdown, and others. Assassinations and conspiracies, corruption and cover-ups, international affairs, and extramarital ones, too. Examine all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. When Brittany Murphy fell in love with screenwriter Simon Monjack in 2007, her career was already in murky waters. Her agents had dumped her. She was only offered low-budget films, and many suspected that she was abusing both prescription and illegal drugs. Brittany also constantly battled rumors about her weight, Although she was five foot three and weighed 115 pounds, not unhealthy for someone her size, she was badgered by the press. Frustrated, she finally told Cosmopolitan, No, I've never had an eating disorder, and I don't do drugs. I have a glass of champagne now and then. Despite these words, after marrying Simon, Brittany's behavior grew odd and erratic. Those close to the actress said Simon dictated everyone she spoke to, from who to be friends with to what agents, managers, and producers she could meet with. Simon allegedly even decided what roles she could take. If true, Simon's actions weren't uncharacteristic. On the contrary, 
Many Hollywood players knew him as a con artist long before he'd married Britney. In 2001, Simon had a whirlwind romance with British TV presenter Simone Bien. He told Simone that he was an heir to a steel mill and an art collector, neither of which was true. And as soon as the couple got hitched in Vegas, Simon's demeanor changed. He moved into Simone's million-dollar home and nearly trashed the place. He hardly left the couch and barely touched the laptop that was meant to be his screenwriting tool. By April of 2002, Simone had had enough. She separated from Simon and spent the next four years trying to get him to sign off on a divorce. She eventually sued Simon for $50,000 in settlement fees, which he wouldn't pay for another three years. But this was just the tip of the iceberg. In 2006, Simon sued the production of Factory Girl, a film based on the life of Andy Warhol's muse, Edie Sedgwick. He claimed that the movie's director, Britney's former friend, George Hickenlooper, had stolen his screenplay. Hickenlooper, a Yale graduate with dozens of credits under his belt, claimed the lawsuit was preposterous. He insisted that Simon had nothing to do with the film. According to Hickenlooper, Simon just wanted a screenwriter credit so he could scam more money out of future investors. Ultimately, however, Simon's lawsuit held production over a barrel, and Hickenlooper claimed that the only way to finish the production was to concede and give Simon a writer's credit on the film. Simon's unsavory activity didn't end there. Throughout the 2000s, he'd been caught filing for fraudulent credit card charges. Eventually, he owed 400,000 pounds to Coots, a private English banking company. In addition, Simon removed producer and writer Susan Potter's name from the White Hotel script, the same story that won over Brittany, turning the film's investors against her. Even Simon's own lawyer couldn't trust him. New York attorney Richard Golub confronted Simon about the dozens of trust funds and inheritances he had conned people out of. Then he told Simon that he didn't want to be in business with someone who was flim-flamming people. In response, Simon surprised Golub by admitting to making mistakes in the past. Then he allegedly told his lawyer that he was turning over a new leaf. But if Simon was truly contrite about his past actions, he certainly never told his new wife. In fact, Brittany refused to believe the rumors flying around about her husband. She even called Hickenlooper and begged him to end his crusade against Simon. She told him that by ruining Simon's career, he was also ruining hers. In a way, Brittany was right. Instead of being seen as Simon's victim, the media portrayed her as the Bonnie to his Clyde. Suddenly, everyone in Los Angeles had a story to prove that Britney was never the sweet, innocent starlet she'd claimed to be. In 2009, on the set of a neo-noir thriller Across the Hall, the cast and crew complained of issues with Britney from day one. For starters, she didn't attend the table read, which was the first time the cast gathered to voice the script aloud. Making matters worse, on the first day in front of cameras, Brittany disappeared for four hours, setting back production. 
In addition, she was constantly late to set, but never bothered to offer an excuse or a reason why. Crew members also reported her seeming hot, then cold. They were always unsure what Brittany they'd be getting on any given day. However, the worst allegation cast members leveled against Brittany was that she had a hard time focusing and couldn't remember her lines. Her co-star on Across the Hall, Brad Greenquist, recalled shooting an elevator scene with her. He said Brittany had a hard time staying in frame and kept wandering off her mark after each take. Except Greenquist wasn't convinced drugs were to blame. He believed, quote, she was resentful that she was making such a small, low-budget movie after having been such a big star. Others beg to differ. A crew member on Britney's film, Something Wicked, said the actress would fall asleep in between takes. Her colleagues suspected that a cocktail of prescription drugs was to blame, especially because her behavior seemed to be consistent offset as well. In October 2009, Brittany's neighbors heard her yelling outside her home around 2.30 a.m. She was screaming that someone had fired a gun in front of her house. Neighbors called the police. The authorities arrived to find a frantic Brittany still shouting from her balcony. They searched the property, but despite Brittany's claims, they found no evidence of trespassing or bullet casings outside the home. Instead, they suspected that Brittany may have heard a bang from a power generator at the location. As a result, her outsized reaction to the innocuous event only fed into the rumors. Brittany Murphy was unhinged. During an interview on the AJ in the Morning show, gossip columnist Perez Hilton added fuel to the fire. When asked who he thought the next big Hollywood death would be, Perez claimed... Brittany Murphy, maybe. Things got darker for the actress in November 2009. She traveled to Puerto Rico to film a low-budget thriller titled The Caller. Aside from her usual tardiness and the speculation that she was abusing prescription drugs, the crew had a bigger issue with Brittany, Simon Monjack. Her colleagues said that her behavior while filming was upbeat and flirtatious, But the second that Simon came around, Brittany acted withdrawn, as if locked under some sort of spell. More often than not, Simon showed up to Brittany's set drunk. Eventually, producers felt his behavior had gotten so intrusive that they called a meeting to address the issue. They even spoke with Brittany and asked if she would discuss it with him. Brittany refused. Producers were left with no choice but to fire Brittany from the film. To cap off the disastrous trip, just before leaving Puerto Rico, Simon got into a drunken fight with locals and nearly got arrested. However, if Brittany was considering leaving Simon, she likely changed her mind after he had a terrifying health scare. On November 28, 2009, Brittany, Simon, and Sharon flew back to Los Angeles. During the flight, Simon experienced symptoms of an asthma attack, followed by a seizure. When the plane landed at LAX airport, Simon was rushed to the hospital. A few hours later, Simon was discharged, although it's not clear what his diagnosis was. 
However, mixing alcohol with prescription medications can lead to seizures. It may have also been due to withdrawal, which can begin two hours after the last pill or drink. Since their flight was seven hours, it provided more than enough time for potential withdrawal symptoms to begin kicking in. There were also rumors that Sharon and Simon had caught a staph infection while in Puerto Rico. However, it couldn't have been that serious if doctors sent Simon home hours after he'd been admitted. Whatever the reason, after Simon's health scare, he and Brittany remained a committed couple. But on December 3rd, 2009, he wasn't at her side on the red carpet for a small fashion pop-up store. The photo call had unintended consequences. When gossip columnists saw the pictures, they again questioned Brittany about her plummeting weight. For the first time in her career, Brittany admitted, quote, I am a bit thinner now than I would like to be. She also shared her New Year's resolution, telling journalists that she planned to move to New York with Simon so the two of them could start a family. According to anonymous party attendees, at the December 2009 fashion event, Brittany was clumsy and appeared dazed. Some allegedly made snide comments, suggesting she was heading towards a similar fate as Michael Jackson and Anna Nicole Smith. Little did they know, those accusations were about to come to pass. A few days after the pop-up party, Brittany began feeling sick. She had similar symptoms as Simon and Sharon, which led them to believe she'd caught their bug from Puerto Rico. Perhaps off of their advice, Brittany took some migraine pills, cough medicine, and over-the-counter nasal spray. But the cold eventually developed into a case of laryngitis. By this time, Brittany was on antidepressants. She'd also started taking anti-inflammatories and painkillers to dilute her menstrual cycles. However, when her symptoms hadn't improved by Friday, December 18th, Brittany finally made an appointment with her doctor for Monday morning. However, the day before her appointment, around 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, Brittany woke up in excruciating pain. She went out to the master bedroom's balcony for some fresh air. Her pain only seemed to get worse. So Brittany finally asked Simon to go get her mother. But when Sharon got to the balcony, she found her daughter lying there, gasping for air. Throughout, Brittany kept saying, Mommy, I can't catch my breath. I'm dying. I'm going to die, Mommy. I love you. Despite these terrifying words, neither Simon nor Sharon called an ambulance. They later claimed it was because Brittany was a hypochondriac. They said she had amped up health scares so much in the past that neither Simon nor Sharon had taken the moment seriously. So instead of fetching professional help, Sharon made Brittany a cup of tea and sent her back to bed. At around 7.30 in the morning, Brittany got up and told her mother she still wasn't feeling well. She said she was going to take a shower in the master suite. When she didn't come back downstairs, Sharon went up to check on her. That's when Sharon found the 115-pound actress lying on her back in a pool of her own vomit. Sharon made the 911 call and waited for emergency responders. 
Meanwhile, Simon performs CPR in his vomit-stained pajamas. By the time the EMTs had arrived, Brittany's pulse was dulled and she'd stopped breathing. The paramedics rushed her to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, just a couple miles from their home, but it was too late. Perez Hilton's prophecy had come to pass. Brittany Murphy was dead. Coming up, Brittany's death sparks a frenzy of accusations. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On December 20th, 2009, Brittany Murphy was found unconscious in her Hollywood home. Paramedics rushed her to the hospital. Despite their efforts, at 10 a.m., Brittany was pronounced dead. Around 4 p.m. that afternoon, the Los Angeles Police Department arrived at the home to investigate. While no malicious intent was suspected, high-profile deaths always received extra scrutiny. Sharon was hesitant to let the police into their home without a search warrant, but Simon complied. He felt he had nothing to hide. Simon told authorities that Brittany had been feeling ill the day before and spent most of the day in bed. They watched movies and ordered Thai food. He insisted that Brittany did not use illegal drugs. She'd only taken cough syrup and a prescription medication for her period. However, the police found more than 90 different prescription bottles on Simon's nightstand and a dozen more on Brittany's. Pills for depression, anxiety, and many habit-forming painkillers. Ed Winter, the Los Angeles coroner, arrived at the house later that evening. He claimed that Simon was acting strange. He paced around the room, rambled on, and seemed confused about the situation. Then, when Winter told him they'd be performing an autopsy on Brittany, Simon refused. Suddenly, the screenwriter flew off the handle. He claimed he didn't want his wife's body all cut up. Winter told Simon that any time there's a death, an autopsy is performed, unless there's a religious objection or court order. Simon couldn't provide either. Despite their odd behavior, Winter didn't suspect Sharon or Simon had played a role in Brittany's death. And after Winter performed Brittany's autopsy the following afternoon, he ruled that her death, quote, appeared to be natural. In addition, rumors of injectable drug use were put to rest, seeing as no track marks or needle punctures were found on Brittany's body. However, it would be another few months before the toxicology reports and lab results came back, meaning they still had to wait for an official cause of death to be determined. Meanwhile, Simon and Sharon had no problem publicly discussing Britney's death. The duo appeared on the Today Show and the cover of Us Weekly cuddled closely together, appearing more like a couple than mother and son-in-law. This impression was bolstered in January 2010 
when Sharon and Simon recorded an episode of Larry King. During the broadcast, Larry asked Simon about his future plans, and he said he would remain by Sharon's side. This seemed odd, to say the least. Simon also stated that Hollywood had broken Britney's heart, and that's what led to her death. He specifically pointed fingers at Warner Brothers and their movie Happy Feet 2. He claimed the studio had fired Britney from reprising her role as one of the voices in the franchise. He mentioned that Britney was heartbroken over the situation and spent days crying about it. However, Warner Brothers issued a follow-up statement saying they'd never entered into any deal between themselves and Britney for Happy Feet 2. They claimed there was not a contract to cancel. But Simon was undeterred, forming plans to write a book about his late wife. The story's primary focus was allegedly the producers, agents, and studios who had spread defaming rumors about Britney, causing her career to spiral. In other words, Simon was looking for someone to blame for his wife's death. During the Larry King show, Simon and Sharon also told the hosts that they were creating a foundation in Britney's honor. The nonprofit would raise money for everything from cancer research to the crisis in Haiti. The launch of the foundation was set to coincide with Britney's memorial in February 2010. Simon and Sharon asked those who RSVP to the service to donate $1,000 to the Britney Murphy Foundation before their arrival. Despite this request for donations, many A-list celebrities confirmed their attendance. Eminem was even allegedly scheduled to perform. Then, on the morning of the memorial, guests received an email reading, So sorry, but the memorial has been canceled due to an illness in the family. Shortly after the canceled memorial, it was discovered that the Brittany Murphy Foundation was never registered as a nonprofit organization. Perhaps as a response to being exposed, the charity's website posted that they were no longer accepting donations. It's unclear what happened to the thousands of dollars they had already received. If this made the public suspicious of Simon and Sharon, their unease was put to rest by Brittany's autopsy findings. On February 25th, 2010, the autopsy report concluded that Brittany had died of pneumonia and anemia, a condition in which the body does not produce enough red blood cells to disperse oxygen throughout the body. The report also stated that her condition had worsened due to a mixture of medications. Officials also concluded that Brittany was suffering from a severe iron deficiency, which made her more vulnerable to infections. Coroner Ed Winters stated that Brittany's death was indeed accidental, but it could have been prevented. He stated, had they taken her to a doctor or a hospital, it would have been treatable. With foul play ruled out by the coroner, Simon felt vindicated, but he refused to crawl back into Hollywood obscurity. Instead, in a desperate attempt to stay relevant, Simon opened his doors to Radar magazine. Unshaven and unkempt, Simon greeted the gossip reporters while smoking a cigar. Then he led the camera crew through the 8,000-square-foot home, which appeared untouched since Brittany's death. Deadpan, Simon gave a morbid tour. 
picking through racks of his wife's clothes and showing off certain expensive pieces in the process. Next, he led Radar's reporters into the peach-colored bathroom where Brittany had collapsed. The counter was hardly visible under the piles of cosmetics and hair products that Simon had never bothered clearing. Simon even showed off the leopard print dog bed that Brittany fell on. He boasted to the cameras, you're the first people to ever see the infamous bathroom. As payment for his ghoulish, insensitive candor, Simon received $10,000. However, the interview was one of the last exclusives he would ever give. By May 2010, 40-year-old Simon was constantly complaining of a persistent numbness in his limbs. He had also started using a small oxygen machine because he was having trouble breathing. Then on the 22nd of May, Simon's health issues worsened. He began coughing up thick black mucus, and he was running a feverish temperature of 105 degrees. The following day at around 7.45 p.m., Sharon heard Simon gurgling and choking. He had a brown, foam-like substance coming from his mouth. And yet, Sharon didn't call 911 for another two hours. When she finally did call, it was to tell the operator that her son-in-law had stopped breathing. In response, they instructed Sharon to get Simon off of the bed and onto the floor. She told the operator that she couldn't move him, yelling into the receiver that Simon was, quote, gigantic. For that reason, when the paramedics arrived a few minutes later, Simon was still in bed. When they checked his vitals, he had no pulse and rigor mortis had already set in. At 9.45 p.m., Simon Monjack was pronounced dead. Investigators arrived around midnight to question Sharon. She told them that Simon was having heart problems and was in the process of scheduling open-heart surgery. However, Simon's doctor later refuted this claim. He said he'd recently examined Simon and found nothing wrong with his heart. Even more curious, when police examined Simon's bedroom, they found a variety of pill bottles with the name Trevor Williams on the label, perhaps an alias used by Simon. They also uncovered prescriptions with the name Sharon Monjack on the front. Then, when officials opened the nightstand on Brittany's side of the bed, they discovered a stack of Sharon's belongings. When questioned, Sharon told the police that this was her side of the bed now. This, in addition to the pill bottle bearing her name with Simon's surname tacked on, indicated that Sharon and Simon had been sleeping together for some time. Despite the evidence, Sharon later denied these allegations. She claimed that the investigators had misrepresented things, misconstruing her words. Things got even stranger when Simon's autopsy report came back in August 2010. The results concluded that Simon had also died of pneumonia and anemia, the exact same cause of death as Brittany. Once again, media speculation ran wild. How was it possible that these two relatively young lovers could die several months apart from the exact same health issue? 
especially when drugs were ruled out as the leading cause of death in both. As far as spectators were concerned, this was more than another Hollywood tragedy. It was a massive conspiracy. Next time, we'll dive into some of the theories surrounding Brittany and Simon's suspicious demise. First, we'll explore conspiracy theory number one, to see if Brittany's home was infested with a toxic mold that killed both her and Simon. Then we'll look at conspiracy theory number two to see if it's possible that Brittany and Simon were the targets of a government cover-up after getting in with the wrong crowd. Finally, we'll investigate conspiracy theory number three to see if the couple were murdered by Sharon Murphy herself. Brittany Murphy could easily go down in Hollywood history as just another casualty of fame and pressure, a victim of an industry that devours people whole, spitting them out as a shell of their former selves. But perhaps there's more to Brittany's untimely demise. Maybe it was the people she trusted most who inevitably put the final nail in her proverbial coffin. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Brittany Murphy's death. Out of the many sources we used, we found A Case for Murder, The Brittany Murphy Files by Bryn Kurt James Hammond useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nicholas Swart and Abiageli Adimegu. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Fact, fiction, fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from ParCast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.